You're listening to the Keep Going Podcast with a new name. By the end of this story, I'll explain why. I'm Nika Maples. This is episode 59, COVID Lessons, part one. My voice was different. I woke up on the morning of Tuesday, January 26, and noticed a resonant sound when I spoke. It was deeper somehow. There was no sore throat, no cough, nothing else, just a voice that seemed to echo. It lasted all day. By Wednesday, my new voice went away, but my chest burned. Nothing else, but the light sizzle in my lungs was hard to ignore. I decided to quarantine myself just in case. By Thursday, the chest burn went away, and I had a headache and a bit of a cough. Friday, the cough and headache went away, but I was exhausted. I got up and got dressed for one Zoom appointment and then went back to bed. My friends were worried about me when I told them about my strange transitory symptoms, but I also assured them not to come by because I was fine. It was just a cold, I said. I needed to rest all weekend, I said. My friend Jessica brought by a few dozen meals and left them outside my door. On Saturday, I was still just tired, but then I had chills. I didn't have a thermometer to check on my temperature, and I just stayed in bed all day. On Sunday, January 31st, I knew something was really wrong. The body aches were terrible. Every muscle throbbed. When I could hardly make it to the bathroom without wincing with every step, I got out an old walker, which I never use. Most of the time, I just stayed in bed. That night, my brother left groceries outside my door, including hot tea, honey, Tylenol, and a thermometer. I ripped it open. My temperature was 103.7. I saw it on the digital readout, sighed, and got back in bed. Friends texted, and I told them I was fine, fine, fine. One friend, who is a doctor, called and left a message. The morning of Monday, February 1st, the next day, would be one week since I had begun experiencing symptoms. So I called him back. He asked me lots of questions, but I told him that I was recovering. I remember saying that this wasn't the worst I'd ever felt. When I'd gotten H1N1 in 2008 or so, it had been a lot worse. He warned me if I had the slightest trouble breathing to go to the hospital. I promised him I would. From Monday, February 1st to Thursday, February 4th, I stayed about the same symptom-wise, just really sick. It was all flu-like. Severe muscle aches, exhaustion, and a fever were my main symptoms. My temperature climbed to 103 over and over again. It never dropped below 100, even with Tylenol. And there was a tickle in my lungs when I would breathe deep, but I wasn't coughing or struggling to breathe. I was only eating about three tablespoons to a half cup of food at every meal because I just didn't have the energy or interest to chew and swallow. 
the fatigue was overwhelming. And if you're asking why I was approaching 10 days without making a medical appointment, all I can tell you is that something changes inside of you when you've lived a lifetime of chronic illness. I was diagnosed with systemic lupus when I was 12, and I've tolerated varying degrees of illness and pain for 35 years. My temperature has even been up to 106 before. And most of the time when we would make a trip to the ER or to see my specialist, we would leave with no answers. They never knew what was wrong. I just got used to mystery and I learned to tough it out. The body resolves most things on its own if you're patient. So there's a window into my mindset in February of 2021. Like lupus, there aren't a lot of concrete answers when it comes to COVID. And by then, I was pretty sure that that's what I had. But I told myself that most people are recovering well at home. And it's true. Most people are. If I've learned one thing from having critical, life-threatening episodes, one after another, it's that the most unhealthy thing you can do is panic. Fear produces nothing good in your body. So stay calm when you get sick. I stayed calm and I stayed home. I was just glad to have an excuse to stay in bed and watch Netflix on my iPad all day. You see, the first week of January, I had hosted the Keep Going Workshop, and it was a wonderful event from start to finish. We'd had 16 guests in person at the hotel and 82 watching online. But for a lot of reasons that I won't go into here, I'd executed the whole thing by myself in the end. From the catering, to the AV crew, to the product delivery, to the curriculum, to the guest speakers. All of it. The night before the event, I opened my eyes wide. What if something happens to me? I thought. Not one person anywhere knew a password or a contact number. No one knew a name or an email or a single aspect of the many moving parts of that event. The entire thing was on me. The event itself was spectacular. Nothing went wrong. But when that last guest walked out of the hotel, at the end of that beautiful day, I had almost collapsed. My sister-in-law had to help me to the car because I couldn't take a single step without assistance. Then I rested that weekend. And I had planned to get back to my life and my work, but I couldn't. It wasn't physical exhaustion that was chasing me then, but emotional and mental exhaustion. I couldn't focus. I didn't want to get out of bed. I didn't even want to go home. I stayed with my brother and his family for a week. Then I stayed with my mother for a week. I did the absolute minimum to keep my business afloat. And the rest of the time, I stared out the window listlessly. I felt like Elijah after he called down the fire of heaven on Mount Carmel. Like him, I was depressed right after a significant victory. Like him, I had done it all alone. And like him, I was paying a price for that. So when I came down with what I knew was COVID, 
I was kind of relieved. I saw it as a hefty excuse to do nothing for a while. The girl who believes we should all keep going did not want to keep going at all. I wanted to watch sitcoms, okay? I wanted to watch Gilmore Girls. I wanted to watch the entire fourth season of The Crown, which I did. I wanted to watch documentaries about Diana and Charles and the rest of the shipwreck Windsors. Do you have any idea how many documentaries there are about the royals? I think I watched them all the first week of February. I kept telling myself I deserved to do nothing. Half the time, when a show was on, I fell asleep in the middle of it. I was in pain, I was tired, and the stark reality was I couldn't see. That was the other symptom. I couldn't see well. Even with my glasses on, everything was blurry. So I couldn't read a book or a magazine. I could barely see the screen on my iPad to watch a show, but I sure wasn't reading my Bible. I just didn't feel like it. I chose to suffer and allow myself to wallow in it. And I would squint at my phone when someone texted and answer with, I'm doing fine. I'm getting better. My friend Jessica dropped by another bag of food. But something else happened on that Thursday. When I went to the kitchen to get my three bites of lunch, the Lord had spoken to me. It was sudden and unexpected. I was just washing my hands, looking out the small kitchen window, and he said, Fight harder. Fight harder? I thought. Fight harder? How can I be expected to fight harder? I was miserable. My fever was unrelenting. I had no energy to fight harder, but I knew he meant it. So I went back to bed and I didn't turn on the iPad. I lay in silence thinking, how am I supposed to fight harder? I have no idea. I lay still and couldn't stand the boredom. So I played a meditation episode of the Revelation Wellness Podcast and tried to focus on the Lord and pray. When the show advanced to the next episode, it was one with exercise and movement, upbeat music playing all the way through. I just let it play because I didn't have the fortitude to grab my phone and turn it off. And in that episode, Elisa Keaton said, in the middle of her breathing hard and counting off reps, come on, smile, confuse your flesh. Smile. Confuse your flesh. The phrase hit the target of my heart like a well-aimed arrow. And as it did, the Lord said, that's how you fight harder. I switched off the podcast. Smile. Confuse your flesh. I realized I had not smiled since January 26th when I'd experienced my very first symptom. It had been 10 days. So I lifted the corners of my mouth, and my cheeks hurt as I did it. But the act of smiling did something that I can't explain. Now, I wasn't smiling because I'd heard something funny. No, even Netflix comedies had not made me smile. I was smiling as a spiritual discipline, choosing it on purpose, grasping for joy as an act of defiance. I smiled, and the atmosphere shifted. With weak fingers, I started reaching out to several friends, family, 
and even acquaintances. I still couldn't read my Bible. The words were so tiny and blurred, and I didn't want one of those stiff and stuffy voices on a Bible app to read to me. I wanted people I loved to read the Bible to me, people who loved the Bible. So, risking being dismissed, I asked them if they would record themselves in a voice memo, reading a favorite scripture or two, and send it to me. I received dozens of those brief recordings and started playing them one after another when my pain was the worst or when I woke up and couldn't go back to sleep in the middle of the night. One friend even recorded a 15-minute meditation to help lower my fever and help me get to sleep. I listened to it over and over and over. This was fighting harder. My friend Macy called me that night. She'd been checking in on me on and off because her husband's journey with COVID was matching mine step for step. He and I had shown initial symptoms on the same day and were both spiraling downward at the same rate. What Macy was seeing in her husband, she knew was happening to me across town. But she was helping him at every turn and she knew that as a single person, nobody was helping me. She'd been offering to come over and clean my apartment, do my dishes, change my sheets for days. She was already exposed to COVID and could be the one to come in and help, she said. Again and again, I just told her I was fine. I kept saying that it was too far for her to drive from Dallas to Fort Worth, almost an hour trip. What I didn't tell her is that my apartment was a hell hole. Empty water bottles, dirty dishes, piles of dirty clothes, wadded tissues were all over the floor. When I would use something, I would just drop it. And I'm being transparent here. It was horrible. I didn't want anyone to see it. When I'd started that habit, I had thought I would only be sick for three days and then clean up the whole place when I felt better. But it had been 10 days and I'd never even picked up one thing. I was living in squalor and I didn't want Macy to see what I'd done. I don't care how much she said she loved me. I didn't trust anyone to keep loving me after they saw me and my mess. Don't bother coming, I told her again. It's too far for you to drive. And then Macy said something I will never forget. Something that completely changed the trajectory of my experience with COVID and may have saved my life. She took a firm but loving tone and said, Nika, I'm tired of you making decisions for me. What? I asked. I'm serious. I'm tired of you making decisions for me and everyone else. You've decided that an hour is too far for me to drive to help you. You didn't let me make my own decision about what was too far for me. And you've decided that Becky is too busy with her four kids to come and help you. You made that decision for her, even though she's already had COVID and would like to come and help you. You've decided that Jessica needs to focus on her bakery business right now instead of assisting you. You've decided that for her, even though she's already had COVID and really wants to be there for you. You don't know what we want or what is best for us. So please stop making our decisions for us. I was silent. 
I'd never heard it put that way. I thought I was just making things easier for my friends, telling them they didn't have to go out of their way. But when I thought about it, I was making their decisions for them. It had never occurred to me. Now, she continued, Luke and I want to send a nurse over to your apartment to give you an IV because you've got to be dehydrated. Please say yes. I'm really starting to be concerned about you. I put my fingers to my lips. They'd been peeling and splitting apart for the last couple of days. I was drinking as much water as I could keep down, but I knew I was getting dehydrated. So I told Macy I would think about it. She gave me the number of the nurse. That Friday, I noticed that it hurt to breathe. I tried to lay still and silent in bed, listening to my friend's recordings of Bible verses. Sometimes I lay on my stomach with a frozen water bottle on the back of my neck. And finally, knowing it was the tenth day, and I certainly wasn't better, I made an appointment for the nurse to come give me an IV. When she came, I unlocked the door with an app on my phone. I never even left the bed. She gave me the IV, a 45-minute procedure, and then she left. I locked the door from my place in the bed. I was hoping the IV was the thing that would make me turn around. The nurse had seen my apartment looking disgusting, and she had survived. She had just stepped over dishes and water bottles to squat by my bedside. But I knew I wasn't going to be able to stop with just letting a stranger see the mess. It was going to have to be my friends. I was going to have to let them in. I didn't want it to happen. It's not like I have a facade going with my friendships. They know me as I truly am. We're vulnerable with one another. It's just that this level of chaos was not something I wanted anyone to see. The idea of letting someone in made me feel naked. Oh, if only I'd known how naked I was about to become. I texted my friend Becky that night and told her that I needed help. Before I hit send, I thought about what Macy had said to me about letting people make their own decisions about what they're willing to give and offer. I needed it bad enough that I was willing to let Becky be the first one to really come in. I described my apartment to her and told her that I really needed someone to clean it even to bring clean sheets and change my bed for me. I listed several things that I could use from the store as well. She was more than happy to be there for me, she said. In fact, she was relieved that I'd finally said yes to someone. She thought about coming on Sunday afternoon or even at the beginning of the following week. That was fine with me, I said, and I braced myself for letting someone I love into a situation that I didn't like at all. Then Sunday, February 7th dawned, and Becky was getting ready for church. She says the Lord spoke to her in a sudden way, telling her to skip church and just go to my apartment right away. She texted me to let me know she was coming earlier than planned. Then Becky talked to Macy, and Macy headed out the door in Dallas to come to Fort Worth. Neither one of them knew that since I'd woken up that morning, I'd been struggling to breathe. When Becky arrived at my apartment first, I let her in with the app on my phone. 
She entered with her arms full of cleaning supplies and big black trash bags, but before she picked up anything, she walked over to the bed and leaned in close so she could see my face. You look gray, she said. Something's really wrong, Nika. I don't feel good about doing this by myself. I'm going to call Derica. I think she needs to listen to your lungs and see you. She'll know what to do. Our friend Derica is a nurse. She came quickly and listened to my lungs as I inhaled. Nika, I don't hear any movement in your lower lungs. You need to go to the hospital. To be continued.